Welcome to AXA Investment Managers CPD, Bulls, Bears and Investment Podcast Series for Investment Professionals. It should not be relied upon by retail clients. This podcast does not constitute an offer to buy or sell any AXA Investment Managers group of companies, products or service and should not be regarded as a solicitation, invitation or recommendation to enter into any investment transaction or any other form of planning. It is provided to you for information purposes only. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. The value of your investments can go down as well as up and you may not get back the full amount invested. Hello and welcome to AXA Investment Manager CPD Balls, Bears and Investments podcast, a new series that aims to answer some of the difficult questions facing the investment industry today. I'm Hardik Tawakli and coming up in today's programme, we are talking about debt, more specifically the dangers of having too much of it in our economy. Debt was everywhere during the last bull market. Banks used the bond markets to borrow money and then they used that money to finance other activities as well. There were some highly leveraged vehicles lending to other parts of the market that were, as you say, more opaque. And we will also be hearing from AXA Investment Manager's Chris Igo, who analyses core areas of the global fixed income market and reveals why he believes global debt is likely to keep growing in the future. Central bankers can, you know, warn politicians about the issues of having big deficits or, or borrowing too much. But in the end, politicians are only thinking about the electorate, so they kind of do what they, what they were going to do anyway. It's hard to believe that this year marks the 11th year since the start of the global financial crisis, and 10 years since we saw the collapse of banks like Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. It was a testing period for financial markets, and we all became much more aware of the role debt can play in both driving the economy and helping to keep it afloat. For many people, debt is a double-edged sword. It's a tool that helps governments, corporates and individuals to operate and in most cases helps drive growth. And we've seen that in action in recent years with debt helping countries like the UK to grow. According to the IMF, it expects a modest upgrade for UK growth of 1.6%, while globally it predicts growth of 3.9% this year and next. This is in spite of economies like the UK dealing with issues such as subdued inflation and ultra-low interest rates. But there is another side to debt, and that is when it grows too much too fast. So one of the biggest questions investors are asking today is if we are delving headfirst into a repeat of the years that preceded the 2008 financial crash, particularly as global debt has hit a $237 trillion high in the last quarter of 2017. This is over 40% higher than a decade earlier when we were in the throes of that global financial crisis. So the IMF has already commented in its World Economic Outlook in April that countries need to take immediate action to improve their finances before the next downturn. That's an important warning, particularly as there are fears economic growth is predominantly being driven by debt because low rates mean borrowers and companies continue to lean heavily on this so-called wave of easy money. I'm going to talk through some of these issues a little bit further and I'm here with my co-presenter Nick Lawrence. Nick, whilst I've just gone on about how dangerous debt is, I also think it's quite important to approach the subject quite carefully. I mean, it's fair to say that not all debt is bad and that it's also quite normal for governments to borrow money in order for them to keep it going, for example. They need it in order to encourage everything from company growth to employment, basically to ensure a stable economic cycle survives. Hi, Hadi. Well, yes, you're completely right. Ultimately, governments need to borrow money in order to stabilise their economies. And for many economies, debt is crucial to how it functions. But it's important to remember that any government that uses debt is usually aiming to use it as an investment that will provide future cash flows. 
When we hear about global debt levels having hit a trillion dollar high, and the fact that this is so much higher than during the last crisis, that sounds concerning. Is there going to be a point when the economy's debt level is so high it's going to start becoming an issue? Has it already become an issue in the UK? Well, as we've already said, debt is not intrinsically bad. During a crisis or recession, it's normal for government to borrow a lot more in order to stabilise the economy. And we've seen that happen a lot since 2008. So post-crisis, the UK and the US governments have been trying to slow the pace of their borrowing, if not reducing the level of overall debt as well. If debt is used as a government or a corporate to fund investments that deliver something, whether that is growth or profits or another form of positive change, then debt shouldn't be regarded as a bad thing. But of course, it's fair to say that those positive outcomes are sometimes hard to come by, which is why we hear a lot more about the bad debt stories. So I guess I already mentioned the financial crisis, but another bad debt story, let's look at Greece, for example. You know, they, it was a country that joined the EEC, the European Economic Community in 2001, believing that its inclusion would offer greater stability for it and its economy effectively. Yes, and when they joined, sure enough, yields on Greek government debt fell to levels on a par with some of the most creditworthy countries in the Eurozone. But all this meant was that Greece returned to its prior ways of excessive borrowing and fiscal expansion. And with the onset of the global financial crisis in 2008, Greece's budget deficit exceeded 12% of its GDP by October 2009, which was the highest in Europe at that time. Yeah, and I guess it's times like those when identifying if or when debt has become a problem is a really difficult question to answer. We do know from stock market crashes like in 2008 and the Greek debt crisis that it can be a little bit too late before everyone realises. Yes, and it's not just a case of countries borrowing too much. We see a similar issue with individual companies that take on too much debt and they can't pay it back. As a result, they might not be able to borrow any more and growth of that company suffers. The very opposite of what you were trying to achieve when you started borrowing. I guess we can sort of link that back to 2007 and 2008 when debt was growing at a really strong rate and there was too much lending in the housing market in particular. Not to mention the opaqueness of certain debt instruments in the sector which were a specific cause of defaults really and which ultimately caused the collapse of some financial institutions. Well exactly, debt was everywhere during the last bull market. Banks used the bond markets to borrow money and then they used that money to finance other activities as well. There were some highly leveraged vehicles lending to other parts of the market that were, as you say, more opaque. Eventually, it was found that some of those borrowers couldn't repay their liabilities and the debt was transferred from the private sector to the government. If we look at markets today, people are thinking about debt and over-leveraging differently as a result of what happened a decade ago. I think it's fair to say that since the financial crisis and the huge growth of debt that everyone saw in the years leading up to it, the focus has shifted slightly. Government spending has been reined in and debt is being paid down. Yes, but the, the result of paying down debt is not immediate. Politically, it's a very difficult thing to do, as we've seen with the UK's austerity measures through 2009 and 2010. For a time, it arguably depressed growth in markets like the US and the UK as a result. Is there a danger that enough lessons haven't been learnt from the crisis? We still have those complex credit vehicles today, which are basically lots of types of debt that are repackaged differently, and they're still being sold to investors today. Do the investors they're being sold to really understand what they're buying? Well, lots of people thought so pre-2007, but as it turned out, that was not the case. Exactly. And it could be argued that some individuals, some institutions too, they're not taking action, or enough action, to rein debt back in yet, because central bank interventions such as QE 
plus this notion of lower for longer interest rates have, rightly or wrongly, given the market a lot of confidence. It's given them confidence that the, this level of debt is sustainable. And they're also more reliant on it. But equally, it's important to remember that bringing down debt, and I'm talking about all sorts of debt, both individual and uh, at a government level, is difficult. The UK government used austerity, which is painful, and people do get fed up. And we've seen this during the recession. They get fed up of falling living standards. That can lead to political extremism. For example, the rise of the identitarian right in Europe. Even here in the UK, we've seen something similar, albeit to a lesser extent. And I guess whilst individuals with a lot of debt can take steps to bring it down by cutting back on their spending or getting a second job, at a national level, policyholders really only have a few cho choices. You mentioned austerity already, and we've also seen interest rates reduced right back down over the past decade. Yes, we've experienced QE, which the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve and the European uh, Central Bank have all used. They attempted to create inflation by inserting more money into the economy. But in the process, they've also reduced the real value of existing debt. Uh, another option is to do what Greece did in 2011 and default on your debt and restructure it. Yes, all of these options to reduce debt have positive and negative knock-on effects on things like growth and inflation and economies as a whole. According to Chris Igo, who is AXA Investment Manager's fixed income CIO, the way things stand today is the debt problem will only increase and actually that's not sustainable. Chris even says he's confident that in the next decade or so, there will be another debt crisis because growth is not moving up fast enough. Yeah, and we're going to be hearing from Chris shortly on this podcast. His views not just on debt in the economy, but its impact on fixed income markets as well. For now, let's look to the future a little bit and, and let's focus on the UK specifically, Nick. We know that growth is integral to any reduction of debt and we are now starting to see this come through in developed economies and the UK specifically. I think the UK saw better than expected growth in the last quarter of 2017, um, although expected growth of 0.2% in February actually turned into a 0.2% decline, the ONS said. That doesn't bode well for an economy that is trying really hard to push down its debt pile. And then after one interest rate rise last year, the Bank of England's decided to hold off on another rate rise, which is making borrowing more debt easier. Well, we need to remember that the decision to hold rates in February came with some heavy caveats and the Bank of England, or certainly those connected to the bank, seem to suggest that several interest rates are likely throughout the year to tackle inflation. The bank's governor, Mark Carney, had previously suggested that there could be two further rate hikes to curb inflation over the next three years. If interest rates do rise in the UK, it's going to mean a lower income stream, so asset classes like bonds might start looking less attractive to investors. Well, we've already seen bond yields in some European markets reach negative figures. But if an investor chooses to invest in a bond fund where the fund manager has the, the freedom to invest in a mix of quality, high yield and government bonds, then that should be seen as a good way of lowering risk and maintaining a, a level of yield as well. But certainly investors will need to search harder and pay more careful attention to things like duration in fixed income in order to find yield. I think I'm going to leave it there, Nick. Thank you so much. It's been great speaking with you. I think, like many things, debt as a subject has got loads of questions, but no simple answers. For now, I want to turn to the expert in this field, Chris Igo, AXA Investment Manager CIO and the Head of European and Asian Fixed Income. We've been talking in the first part of this podcast about how debt is a completely normal part of the cycle, and in many instances, a healthy part of it. But we also saw 10 years ago how badly financial markets and economies were impacted by too much unleveraged debt in the system. 
Let's hear from Chris and his view on how economies have recovered from the crisis and the impact it's had on fixed income in particular. Let's, let's move on to uh, the lenders and where the opportunities are for them to make money. Um, you've got divided into bond market and loans. Could you just quickly define the difference between them? Yeah, well, a bond market is, is, is the bond market is really the securitization of, of borrowing. So you have a piece of paper that, that says, I've lent you money and you're going to pay it back over so many years and at this level of interest rate. And it's tradable. It's tradable very easily through uh, through the bond market. So we have different kinds of, of bonds issued by governments, uh, issued by companies. Uh, we have short-term and long-term debt. We have debt that comes from developed uh, economies and debt that comes from emerging economies. And in total, uh, the market's around $80 trillion, so it's massive. Uh, and it does provide that facility for, for global savings to be used in a, in a productive way. What's the definition of short and long-term debt in this case? Well, we tend to make it it's fairly arbitrary. Short-term debt is something less than, than a year, uh, and long-term debt is, is beyond that. But clearly, five-year debt is different to 30-year debt. And companies tend to issue really in the kind of medium term space, so between five and ten years. Some companies are able to issue debt for much longer maturities. There have been some 100-year uh, bond issues in, in, in recent years, but they tend to be very, very secure, well-established companies who have got a long history of borrowing. But if you took a huge company today, like say Apple for sake of example, um, how do you make a calculation whether you'd want to lend it money for 50 years? Because that tech space changes over so quickly. Yes, well, that's the you know that you have to consider the the long-term credit rating, the long-term model, the, the outlook for the sector, uh, what you think will happen with interest rates over that over that period. Uh, that's why when you lend for 50 years, you expect to re receive a much higher coupon than if you lend for three years because there's more uncertainty about the future. So the shape of the yield curve, if you like, is is steep always because the longer you lend for the more return you're required. And is it a similar thing with countries? I mean, I'm just sort of, as you look around the world today, countries are splitting up, yeah. you know, there are wars, changes of regime. How does that all impact on your well, return? Of course, when you're, when you're lending to countries, you have to consider the political aspect as well. There was a huge debate recently in the UK about what would happen to UK debt if Scotland did vote for independence. We see it with Russia and, and Ukraine today. Uh, particularly for emerging markets, you have to take into account the political aspect. Uh, and the kind of macroeconomic volatility, if you like, which often means that emerging market countries borrow at much higher interest rates than developed market economies. But is there a tendency if you get a totally new government, there's been a revolution, they just say, all of that was the problem of the last regime, it's got nothing to do with us, it's ground zero and off we go. Does that happen or do people tend to honour the debts of their predecessors? It, it depends. Sometimes the debt's been written off. I mean, if you look at a country like Argentina, which has had a volatile political history, it's had a series of defaults as well, which means it's very difficult for them to come back to the capital markets to raise money again. And normally they can only do that with the help of in international institutions like the World Bank. But if you default as a country, and you mentioned Argentina, what does it then do to all the companies and the individuals under that? Because presumably they're quite reliant on flows of capital from outside the country? It depends whether their debt's in local currency or in, in foreign currency. If it's in foreign currency, they usually go through the same process as the government because they won't uh, have access to the foreign currency to repay the debt, so they, there would be high default. If it's local currency, you know, normally what happens is the local central bank prints money to provide that liquidity. 
And uh, in terms of how the shape of the world bond markets are changing, we, we hear so much about the rise of emerging markets, China, India and so forth. Are they becoming a larger and larger part of the global bond markets? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we've not so much those two, funnily enough, even though they're the largest emerging markets. Uh, but countries like Brazil, Turkey, South Africa have been big issuers of debt in recent years, Russia as well. More importantly, I think, those countries are off source of savings which are now starting to be utilized in in the global bond market so you get this coming together of borrowers and lenders for example in Hong Kong there's an offshore Chinese renminbi bond market which people like Caterpillar from the United States will issue debt into and investors who want access to the Chinese currency will invest in and that, well that's bonds you mentioned securitization how do they differ from loans uh, loans tend to be less uh, liquid. There tends to be a, a smaller secondary market for loans. Uh, they tend to uh, be based on floating rate uh, interest rates uh, and they tend to be for kind of specific projects or, 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 or to finance a, a particular business expansion. Uh, lo loans are interesting because they tend to be more senior so uh, they're lower risk in a sense uh, in, in many cases uh, but, but they're not as liquid as bonds so the opportunity set is much smaller for investors. Can you as a fund manager get access to them? Or, or how, how do you do it given it's a it's it's not a publicly available no, in public a market. Of ways, there's, there's, you know, banks are still very much involved in the creation of new loans through uh, syndications. So a number of banks will come together, organise the loan for a company, and then look for other investors to come in and, and join. And on the secondary side, banks, of course, because they want to deleverage, are selling uh, baskets of loans that exist on their balance sheet to other investors and insurance companies and pension funds have been very active in buying those those baskets of loans. But the banks are still very, very much involved in the loan market. As banks have started to lend less money, what new sources of lending have started to come into the global economy? Yeah, we call this the disintermediation of the banking sector. So we look at things like insurance companies and pension funds trying to bypass the banks and looking at the private sector directly. The difficulty is if you want to lend to a bunch of companies. You have to do the credit work, you have to understand the risks in, in lending directly to companies, which banks have always typically done. So there, there are partnerships now between insurance companies and banks for providing the insurance companies provide the capital, the banks provide the facilitation of the lending, but the money is coming from a non-banking source, if you like. Now, the final one I want to pick you up on here is leveraged loans. I thought that was something we all heard about in the middle of the 2000s, but are they, are they back? They're back, yes, and this tends to be very similar to the high-yield bond market. It's, it's smaller, perhaps more risky or more cyclical companies who rely much more on, on debt financing rather than on equity financing for their businesses. So again, a leverage loan is a way to get access to high coupon or high interest uh, investments in what are you know, riskier companies. Okay, well, moving on from there, I want to move on to the Eurozone. Lots of different economies one currency that seems to have thrown up some quite interesting spins on the traditional bond markets and what it does what, 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 where are we in the european sovereign debt crisis at the moment well it's interesting i think the european debt crisis was, a, was the third domino to fall in, in the global financial crisis we had the housing market and the you know the impact on the financial industry then we had the recession and then we had the european debt crisis and it came about because the emu created a single currency and there was a perception that everybody who borrowed in EMU, in, in euros, had the same credit risk. So countries like Spain and Italy were able to borrow 
at ultimately the same interest rate as Germany. Mm. And the perception was it's all one currency, so it's all one credit risk. And that turned out to be wrong. So countries that needed to borrow or wanted to borrow a lot did. Their debt levels increased and the underlying credit rating deteriorated. And that then became obvious and crystallized in the crisis in, in 2009 when these economies fell into deep recession. I just somebody might say, well, couldn't the market sort this out and say, well, something that's denominated in euros has got to have a credit risk, roughly speaking, of somewhere between Germany and Portugal? But it can't. Why, why did it all end up at the German, uh, perceived German level of risk? Because there was a perception that EMU was a uh, non-reversible project and it would ultimately mean that there would be a single fiscal authority, a single you know, lender of last resort, uh, and therefore all risks would converge uh, on, 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 on the best credit risk, which, which was Germany in this case. The problem is that perception in the markets ran faster than the reality because there wasn't a single fiscal authority, and there still isn't. And the lender of last resort, which ultimately is the ECB, only became apparent in the crisis itself. Well, that's the background. So where are we on it now? How, how did they deal with it if they, didn't have, if they couldn't manoeuvre their currencies? Yeah. Around? You know, in the, EMU was launched in 1999. Before that, there were differences in borrowing costs, France being the core country within Europe slightly higher rate than Germany, but not very much. And then in that decade or so of, of EMU working very well, everybody basically borrowed at the, at the same rate. Now, that meant that Spain, Greece, Italy, Portugal borrowed much more than anyone else because they were starting from lower standards of living. They wanted to boost their economy. They wanted nice roads and railway systems and hospitals, same standard as Germany. So a lot of investment went into those economies. Then we had the crisis in 2008, and the markets woke up to the idea that actually they weren't all the same credit risk and therefore started to differentiate again. So the period in 2010, 2011 was when we thought EMU was going to collapse and the euro would break up because questions were asked about the ability of Spain or Portugal to repay their debt. Mm -hmm. now, would they go bankrupt? We saw Greece really default or, or effectively default on, on its debt. So there was a crisis. The ECB had to step in. The European Union had to step in. And now we're in the kind of repair phase, you know, where countries are trying to stabilize their debt or reduce their debt, where the ECB is very active in providing liquidity into the debt markets. And we've seen some progress in that borrowing spreads have started to come down again. But do you think those spreads are about where they should be for these, given that these countries do have different risks, or, or is it jurisdiction? I think they are. I don't think, you know, over the long term, Spain is as good a credit risk as Germany uh -huh. uh, or, or Italy as France. So, you know, those spreads are probably close to where, where they should be now. The countries with the higher levels of debt and with the worse economic model should pay higher for, for borrowing, and, and that's where we are. Who enforces all the rules here? Because my, my memory, originally when they, the sort of EMU and stuff was coming together, was the Germans wanted some very strict rules on what you had to be able to do to be in the club. Yeah. They, they, they really want to avoid what's happened. So who, who told some untruths to get well, everybody, everybody in a way. I mean, there was a growth and stability pact, or actually it's the stability and growth pact. Stability was the, 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 the key, key thing there. But unfortunately, uh, when uh, um, Mr. Schroeder was Chancellor of Germany, he, he himself ignored the rules, and, and Germany had a 
bigger deficit than it was supposed to have. So nobody enforced the rules and, and, and nobody played by the rules. Now I think the rules are harder. We have a much stricter regime in terms of the European Union, the IMF and the ECB being involved in monitoring government borrowing, monitoring deficits and signing off on medium-term fiscal consolidation plans. Of course, the risk is that governments change and they say, uh, we, you know, we didn't agree to that. But so far, so good in that most countries have stuck by their medium-term plans. What's the implication of that for the, the economic shape of Europe? If these poorer areas have borrowed too much, now there's huge amounts of cutback. What, what, does does Labour move to the richer parts of Europe? Well, it's, it's negative for those borrowers. If, you, if, if we think about Greece, you know, Greece's borrowing really stole economic growth from the future and now there's payback. So growth is much weaker today than it was five years ago. Average living standards are much lower today than they were five years ago. Unemployment is higher. So there is that potential for you know, migration, economic migration within Europe. The problem is most of Europe is in the same boat. So there's the question is where do, where do people go to find jobs? Unemployment's 11% throughout the Euro area. So that's difficulty. Well, that's where we are at the moment. But what are some of the solutions if you've got too much government debt? Well, I think it's it's simple. If you think about an, if you're as an individual and you've got too much debt, what do you do? I mean, you can work hard to get a second job to, to try to grow your income, or you can hope that your income grows because you get big pay increases, or you can basically stop spending on going out and, 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 and so on and, and prioritise paying back your debt. That's the same at the national level. So I think economic policymakers have a few choice. You can try and inflate your way out, first of all, and that's been seen in many cycles in the past where central banks have tried to create inflation which reduces the real value of the existing debt. And in a way you could argue that's what the Fed and the Bank of England have done with QE and, and a little bit successfully. Secondly, you could try to get economic growth. You know, if your economy is growing faster than your debt, then it's manageable. But as we've seen, it's hard to get economic growth when private sectors deleveraging and governments themselves are deleveraging. Austerity, now that's kind of, that was the first policy choice that Euro many European governments took in, in 2010. So we had these big cuts in public spending, changes to retirement benefits and unemployment benefits. The whole gamut of government finances was looked at. Um, that's tough. You know, politically, it, it's very tough. We've seen falling living standards in, in many countries. It's only now that it's actually starting to some bear some fruit in terms of economic growth. Reducing interest rates always helps, and that's what we've done everywhere in the world. Get interest rates down to as low as possible. So even though you've got a lot of debt, you're not paying very much in interest. But ultimately, you may be forced to default and restructure the debt. And that means getting some relief from paying back the coupons and, and paying the interest. And that's what Greece did. It's what a lot of emerging market economies have done in, in recent years. For Greece, as an example, they were able to extend the maturity of their debt, reduce the overall present value of that, and reduce their interest payments. I think in the future, the default and restructuring option may be something that we have to look at again in some countries. Well, one thing I was going to ask is, how does the uh, I suppose, how does the independence of a central bank affect the choices that you make? And we, we were talking last time on Academia about the, the Monetary Policy Committee here in the UK. Does having an independent uh, authority, if you like, mean that you're more likely to make better choices than if it's a political one? I'd like to say yes, but evidence doesn't suggest that that's, that's the case because most central banks in the developed world are as independent as you can get 
uh, certainly compared to history, yet we've still gone through a big debt crisis. Central bankers can, you know, warn politicians about the issues of having big deficits or, or borrowing too much, but in the end, politicians are only thinking about the electorate, so they kind of do what they what they were going to do anyway. And I think then the crisis, the debt problem, in, in a sense backfires on central banks and makes them less independent because in the end they are the lender of the last resort. Uh, they're not going to let the economy completely collapse or the financial system collapse. So there is a kind of a moral hazard issue there that central banks are always called upon in the end to save the day. And just on the inflation point there, can you successfully let a bit of inflation into the system or does inflation have a tendency once it's out there to do what it do what it wants to do and not be controlled? I think the, the answer to that is it's not clear because we've had periods in the past where you know inflation has, has become very rampant but it's not clear that that was because it was a policy choice it may have been a you know combination of, of different factors. The problem we have today of course is there's too little inflation so we are trying to get three four percent inflation but unfortunately we're running at one percent three or four percent inflation would be very useful in that it would mean nominal GDP growth of five or six percent against borrowing costs of, of still very low, three. Uh, and that means that the debt dynamics, if you like, would, would start to improve because nominal growth would be much greater than the amount that would be needed to pay uh, on, on the debt. Everything you've mentioned here, there's sort of pros and cons to all these different tools and levers that you use. In the round, are you confident that the developed world's monetary authorities have got enough room to manoeuvre us through? all of the, the unwind from the 2008 crisis? Um, I think there's a bigger issue here is that we are not really dealing with a debt problem. Debt is continuing to increase and because it's not a problem in the markets at the moment, the pressure is off politicians and policymakers to, to do anything about it. We've had 20 odd years of, of growing debt in the Western world, in, amongst individuals, amongst governments, amongst companies. Uh, and ultimately that's not sustainable because you have to have economic growth to support that debt. So I'm not that confident, to be honest. I think that at some point in the next decade we will have another debt crisis and that may mean that some countries have to again restructure their debt or we will have inflation because inflation ultimately may be the only uh, tool available to deal with debt. We have to leave it there. Chris Igo, thank you very much.